Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. This past week, my mother-in-law and my grandmother-in-law were visiting from Pennsylvania, and we had a lovely visit. Some of you guys got to meet them last Sunday, and I was reminded of something that they have told me about my wife for our whole 14 years or so of marriage, and that is that she was basically a perfect golden child. (laughs) And I have pushed back on that many times, but they stand true. In fact, just on this trip, my mother-in-law said, anytime we had to discipline Jessica, even when she was a little girl, like just toddler to being a little girl, we would just say, now darling, that's not what we do. And we would just grab her arm and say, all right. And she would say, all right, done. And that's all they ever had to do for discipline. And the first few times she told me that over the years, I was like, that can't be true. I mean, what child gets disciplined and just listens to everything like that? And they said, nope, it's true. The grandmother concurs. The aunts and uncles concur. So I married this golden child woman. And I was very much not like that as a child. My parents have very different stories about me. I was what you might call willful. Uh, stubborn, uh, rebellious, you name it. When I was a toddler, I had to be left more than once in the mall screaming because there was just nothing else my parents could do and they had to pretend to leave me. That Any parents ever been there? It's not a, I did that to my parents. And my, I have four children between the ages of two and 11 now. And all four of them seem to have a bit of a combination of my wife and I, not necessarily the golden child factor, but they have my wife's outgoingness and silliness. But it seems like all four of them have, all four of them have my stubbornness and my willfulness. I have never had an experience of discipline even remotely like what my mother-in-law described. So what has very clearly taken place in our family is that I am to blame for every challenge. It's from me and my side of the family alone. <laughs> Thankfully, I was, I was also, I'm a pastor's kid. I was also a counselor's kid. My dad was, he's a marriage and family therapist. And he started teaching me at a young age about one uh, principle called catastrophizing. Here's the definition. It's when someone assumes that the worst will happen. Often it involves believing that you're in a worse situation than you really are or exaggerating the difficulties you face. And my parents would tell little Nathan, hey, Nathan, you're catastrophizing now. Don't worry, be happy. One example was when I was about seven years old, I was playing uh, baseball and we lived on a naval air station because he was a Navy chaplain too. And my dad was uh, one of the assistant coaches on the team, so he was taking me to my game. And apparently on the ride over there, I became quite frustrated with the socks that were a part of my uniform, and the socks just wouldn't stay up. They didn't look right. And by the time we got to the game, my dad said that I was indignant, and I was like, there's no way I'm getting out of this car. My socks are totally messed up. And he said I was freaking out as a little seven-year-old, and I would not get out of the car. And he said, all right, you can stay here. I'll go coach the game. And he had to just leave me in the car. That's a classic case of catastrophizing. I very much believed I was in a worse situation than I actually, actually was. Now, thankfully, I eventually did get out of the car and played the game, but sometimes we're not catastrophizing and we are going through very extreme things. And I want to acknowledge that. In a room like this, there are those that are probably grieving serious losses. 
facing very real challenges or disorders or diagnoses. And we end up facing anxiety. Definition is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. If that gets worse, it turns into desperation, the loss of hope and surrender to despair. If that gets worse, just becomes despair, the complete loss or absence of hope. That's a tragic definition, yet we can live in that space plenty of times in our lives. I've been in counseling sessions where I was counseling people many times when they were in a place of complete despair. I have felt like I was in that place before and sought counseling and pastoral help. And one of the go-to verses uh, in meetings like that is 2 Corinthians 10.5. And whoever's doing the counseling will encourage them, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You've probably had someone try to encourage you with something like that. Just think about what's actually true. Scripture says, whatever is true, think about this. Think about what's good or right or just. But if that's ever happened to you, you also know that it's not always as easy as just thinking about what's true. It's not always as easy as take my thoughts captive. I feel like I'm in a totally losing battle here. And so the Psalm we're gonna look at today is Psalm 13. And it's only six verses. And it's like a, it's like a beautiful case study for how to take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ and deal with the reality of life and still live with a posture of hope. I'm calling this sermon Anxiety, Prayer, and Decisions. And parenthetically, just the first three words of the psalm, how long, Lord? The psalms are incredible because they teach us about God's heart, what God is like. The psalms also teach us that we can relate to God just as we are not as we think we should be or not as we wish we were, but as we are. And they also ultimately point to the person of Jesus, who is the perfectly clear image of the invisible God. They are prophetic in nature. They point to Christ. The context of Psalm 13 is that it was written by David, who Randy during worship alluded to. And we don't actually know what was going on in his life when he wrote this psalm, but it was clearly something very challenging. So we're gonna pick up in verse one. And you can turn into the Psalm, turn to Psalm 13 in your Bible or your Bible app. I've also included it on your notes, the full Psalm, and it will also be on screen. And I wanna just encourage you while we're in this Psalm series, but really all the time, dive into scripture with us and not just while we're here on Sundays. Open up God's word, sit at home, invest time filling yourself with the treasure that he speaks to us through his words. Sit down with it, take a pen out, write in your Bible, write your questions down. In some ways, Psalms 13 and the whole book is just like a big journal entry. Just write and pour out your heart to God, underlying things that are meaningful. Let's pick up in verse one. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. 
Let's look back at verse one. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, the fact that this is included in scripture, I believe is it's an endorsed prayer by God. In other words, it's okay to be in seasons of life where that's your prayer. What's up, God? What in the world are you doing in my life? To the point that you wonder, like David, are you gonna keep forgetting me? Not just am I forgotten, I'm obviously forgotten. Are you always gonna forgive me? That's what he's saying right there. But it's also important to remember as we pray those things and as we look at this text, was David actually forgotten by God? No, we don't believe so. But did David feel forgotten by God? Yes, clearly he did. So you may feel forgotten by God, but you are not. And as we grow into maturity in our faith and as we learn the heart of God, it's important to have that pre-decision way down there foundationally, I'm not forgotten by God. Because then when you're in moments of life where you feel absolutely forgotten, which happens, you will have something deep down there that you don't necessarily feel or may not even buy into in that particular moment, but you know somewhere down there, you're not forgotten. Then David says, how long will you hide from me? It's like he's hiding his face. And then this really describes anxiety. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Have you ever felt like you are the victim of your own thoughts? It's like that spinning mind syndrome that you just can't get a hold of. I have sometimes felt assaulted by myself in my brain. Like, what is happening right now? I'm destroying myself. I don't know if it's the enemy. I don't know if it's me. I don't know if I'm confused, but it's the spinning brain syndrome. And, and I love the fact that David articulates this. How long must this go on, God? All I have up here is wrestling. And then the result of that, day after day, sorrow in my heart. I hope you're not in this place right now, but you've probably experienced in your life at some point, at some point before, and a lot of people are in this place where you just wake up every morning and you, your first thought is, oh, again, sorrow in my heart. Once again, don't wanna live there. Didn't always live there. And you might be wondering, am I always going to live here? Can things ever change? And I think it's encouraging just to realize that these prayers are in God's word. Not only are you not alone with these feelings and thoughts, but you're in really good company. This is David, the one of whom it was said is a man after God's own heart. So you're not disqualified for praying these prayers. You're not disqualified for thinking these thoughts. In fact, you're quite perfectly human. One teacher that I love says, you gotta remember, you are exactly human-sized, and that is okay. I like how Charles Spurgeon, a teacher from a number of decades ago, he calls these first two verses of Psalm 13 questions of anxiety. And I just encourage you to think for a moment, what are your questions of anxiety? What are they in your life right now? What are you wrestling with? David finishes verse two by saying, how long will my enemy triumph over me? So this is just David feeling defeated. Now look at me for a second, because this is the same David 
who when he was a teenager, killed a lion to protect his sheep. This is the same David who when he was a teenager, killed a bear to protect his sheep. The same David who when he was a teenager and the entire Israeli army was terrified by a giant named Goliath, stood up in faith and courage under the anointing of God and said, no way, and took the giant down with a sling and a stone. The same David who's a warrior, a poet, a king, a friend, a conqueror, here he just feels defeated. It is important to have a category in your understanding of God and yourself that no matter how victorious you may be, you will at times feel defeated. And when you do, communicate it to God. Verse one and two of Psalm 13. And if you're there right now, breathe a big sigh of relief. It's okay to be right where you are. But I do wanna caution you. You're not meant to just stay in verses one and two of Psalm 13. In fact, one of the things, one of the reasons I think it is said of David that he had a heart after God is because he felt all those things and wrestled that deeply, but always pressed back into the truth of God. It's called repentance. It's when you change your mind and go a different direction. He would always eventually run back towards the truth. Therefore, he had this heart after God. If you stay in just verses one or two, you can end up in a lifestyle of blame. You could be there now. We, we all know people who are in a lifestyle of blame. It's all God's fault my whole life. It's all this person's fault. It's all that person's fault. Everything is someone else's fault. And blame is the enemy of growth. And let me ask it to you this way. Who do you blame for your life? Or who do you blame for your current challenges? I wanna encourage you, before we actually look at what David starts to do, take ownership by doing what is yours to do and releasing what is God's to do. You have to actually own the reality of your life. And obviously we didn't all create our circumstances. We were born into them. We've been hurt by other people, but it's really important that we own our response to our circumstance because in truth, your response to circumstances shapes you more than the actual circumstances shape you. So if you don't deal with your response and take ownership, you're gonna just be making it worse and worse. And I wanna acknowledge, I'm not making light of abusive situations. I don't intend to. There is deep trauma. There are horrific challenges that some of you have gone through. But even in those worst cases, you are still the, ultimately the only one responsible for your response. So you have to, at some point, ask yourself, do I want to live forever as victim? Or do I wanna take ownership of what at least I can take ownership of and what I believe scripture asks you to take ownership of, which is your response. David could have stayed right there, but then he goes into verse three. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Here's what he's doing. Turn your questions of anxiety into cries of prayer. And I love that language from Charles Spurgeon. Verse one and two are the questions of anxiety. Verses three and four are the cries of prayer. So specifically, allow yourself to feel what you're feeling. I would even encourage you try to name what's going on. In counseling world, they say, if you can name it, you can tame it. Sometimes we're just like being crushed by things. We don't even know what's happening. But if we start to actually name these things, I feel forgotten by God. If you do, have you ever named that? That's what, all the time in counseling meetings with people, when they finally get out of their heart, what they're actually feeling and name it, burst into tears. Because it's like dealing with reality now. 
It's hard to even understand how deep it is. If you feel forgotten by God, name it, and then don't leave it there. Turn it into prayer. So take the questions of anxiety and turn them into cries of prayer. Look what David said. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. He's saying, I need you to to give me understanding that I do not yet have or I think I might actually die. Please enlighten me, Lord. And this is reaffirmed in Philippians 4, 6 in the New Testament. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, do what? Present your request to God. So there is this connection between learning to live a life that is not just about anxiety and learning to actually pray and present your request to God. I bet if you really spend time practicing this, you'll be surprised at how little you actually ask God for what you need. And perhaps how little you even actually ask God for what you want. Present your request to him. So rather than staying in anxiety, present the cries of prayer. Reading back in verse four of the Psalm, he says, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. So he's saying, I'm gonna fall. I'm gonna be broken. I'm gonna be overcome. What will everyone say of me? What will everyone say of you? So he's presenting these prayers, these honest concerns. And then he takes it even a step further in the last two verses of Psalm 13. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And I think it's important to note here that his circumstance has not changed at all yet. This is just one journal entry. So he has shifted from verses one and two, the anxiety, to verses three and four, the prayers, to now this incredible song of faith. And I wanna encourage you to turn your cries of prayer into the song of faith. Of faith. This is the discipline of offering gratitude and worship before we see our prayers answered. It's a wonderful gift to do that. For you guys that are parents, it's one thing to give your kid the present that they want, and then they say they love you and jump on you, and uh, you're the greatest dad in the world. It's like, whatever, you just love me because I gave you the present. Like, great. But when they just, for no reason, jump on you and play with you and love you and just want to hang out, you're like, that's some genuine love. That's some genuine intimate fellowship with my beloved child. And I believe that's true of God too. What a gift to offer God our gratitude and worship just because of who we know he is, apart from what he hope, we hope he will do for us. It's interesting. We can get so focused on what we don't have that we lose all the gratitude for what we do have. And that's a tragic way to live. And this last step is the one that sometimes we just, we just don't practically do it that often. Let the song of faith inform your decisions. There's really nothing more spiritual and more an act of worship than our decision-making. What is informing how we are living every day? Is it the questions of anxiety or is it the song of faith? And I would even encourage you to look through verses five and six again and think about how you would make decisions if you were living within that song of faith. I trust in your unfailing love. One of my girls who is 
eight years old now. Ever since she was about five or six, if she ever shows up to the church and I'm up in my office or if she gets home and she knows I'm home, she immediately jumps out of the van. And even if my wife says, Kenzie, don't go anywhere yet, she like bursts out of there and she starts running to wherever she thinks I am. To the point that when I'm here early in the morning on Sundays, because I get here much earlier than they do just to be prepared, I'll start hearing someone run up the steps full speed. And it's like, I can hear, almost hear the heartbeat. And I'm like, oh, my family's here because Kenzie is booking it full speed to my office right now. And when she opens my door, she runs and just jumps on me. Same at the house. She, full speed, everything, running. She, when she finally gets up the stairs and up to our bedroom, if I'm up there working, she bursts open the door, runs and jumps on me. And she's out of breath because she's been running. And what that is is a demonstration of her trusting in my unfailing love. She is just certain that when she runs full speed to her dad, she is going to be met with embrace. She is going to be met with delight. And I love just when the kids run to me and I can spin them around and look at them. They are going to be met with the joy of my heart pouring all over them. And I just believe that what this text is saying is God wants us to approach him like that, to trust in his unfailing love. And I love this about young kids too. Five minutes ago, they might've gotten big, big trouble for something. But when you're that age, you have a, a, short, a short memory. And once that thing is over, and if you've done your time and timeout is over and you lost the snack or whatever the consequence is, you're back to just running into the unfailing arms of love. And scripture says we're meant to have this childlike faith. So what does it look like for you to practically make decisions and trust his unfailing love? And we actually have this brand new baby. <laughs> What's up, Clausen family? What is her name again? Linnea. We have Linnea here for the first time in church. Who's how many weeks old? Five weeks old. Let's offer, don't clap too loud. Sometimes you startle the little, man, she is beautiful. We always forget how small they are when they first arrive. But there she is in the unfailing love of her father, Andreas, right now. Look at her little, I mean, she's learning right now to trust the unfailing love of her parents. And I bet, Part of, part of Linnea's parents' heart is that she will grow up trusting in their unfailing love. And I know them, and I know that they, they follow Jesus. They ultimately want to point her to trust the unfailing love of God. And you might find yourself in one of those three categories right now. You might be stuck in questions of anxiety. And I just want to encourage you, choose today not to stay there. Lay down the blame. Lay down the just lifestyle of nervousness or fear and let's turn it into prayer. And let's then turn that prayer into an actual song of faith that will change how we make decisions. We're gonna sing this song again. You are good. Let's just do the whole thing, guys. The bridge says you're never gonna let me down. That's a bridge that I'm always kind of skeptical about singing because I, I just, I think about it and I'm like, you've already let me down, God. <laughs> like, I... I haven't loved everything that has happened in my life. I ha I've had pain. I have things right now that I wish were different. How can I like just joyously be like, you're never gonna let, never. Like it isn't like, oh, that just, it seems disingenuous. But as you really work through it and as you really learn the scope of scripture and the promises of God, 
you learned that for, for followers of Jesus, our ultimate conclusion, the place where we are going to land is a place where we will not be let down at all. I would argue you're gonna be so overwhelmed with the goodness and glory of God and how much you are not let down that all you're gonna be able to do is burst with worship and prayer and tears. A friend of mine said, I feel like when I get to heaven and like the new heavens and the new earth and all that, I'm gonna look around and be like, oh man, I wish I would have known it was so good. I would have enjoyed my life more. It's like if you know you're headed to glory, perfection, full love realized, full joy realized in the presence of God, you can live a little bit less stressed and you can sing, you're never gonna let me down. And the things that do really do feel like letdowns now and the ones that feel a lot more like letdowns, that feel like punches to the gut, you can say, God, I don't understand this. This is not exactly what I would want, but I trust you more than me. Help me through it. And it's been said, if it's not good, it's not done yet. Meaning God's not gonna ultimately leave us in something that is not ultimately redeemed for good. Tracking with me? Let's stand together. Lord, as we sing this, help us live out that reality of Psalms 13. And maybe if we've never made you the king of our heart, that's our prayer during this song. Maybe we're just saying, Lord, I wanna be a follower of you. I wanna know you. I wanna walk with you. If that's you, just pray it in your heart right now. I don't, I don't even fully know if you're good, but I hope you're good. And I've tried a lot of other things and I need to follow a way that works. I ask for forgiveness for where I've fallen short. I bring my life to you now as I sing this song. In Jesus' name, let's sing it, church. You are good and faithful, God. And though we declare it right here in this moment, we also recognize this is not some kind of quick fix or easy solution for the deep valleys in life. But it's an important practice to live out the flow of Psalm 13. And I pray for those of here, especially who are maybe hurting or struggling deeply. And they might have been just in those first two verses, feeling forgotten, wondering how long, feeling defeated. I pray they would just inch their way into prayer. And not just here in this moment, but at home later today. I pray they'll crack open their Bible. I pray they'll open their journal. I pray they'll get on their knees at their bedside or walk around their living room or pray in their car and just begin to specifically turn those questions of anxiety into those cries of prayer. Lord, please help me in this area. God, this, this relationship that's causing me so much pain and stress feels impossible. Please help me. This illness that seems to be ravaging my family or my body, please help me, Lord. The financial questions, the uncertain future, all the seeming closed doors. Please help me provide for everything I need, Lord. Change the way I think. With this struggle, this temptation, this sin, I don't wanna live there. I don't wanna be stuck in that rut. I don't wanna spend the years of my life chasing pleasure or joy or love in the wrong places. I wanna chase it in the right place. Change the way I think, Lord. And then if that's you, let's, let's also just say, God, I thank you that you love me. 
I might not fully feel it right now, but your love is unfailing. And I do, in fact, want to remember what it's like to be a little kid with faith running to a parent or a loved one, expecting embrace, expecting delight. Lord, we want to approach you like that. We want to remember that you are good and that you will not let us down. And we can trust the arch of our lives to you. The high parts, the low parts, and most importantly, the the end conclusion. We trust you. It's in your hands. I pray that each person here today would feel a release off their shoulders. I pray they would feel light in their eyes. Actual understanding that they can live, they can have joy, they can exist in this current circumstance, even if it doesn't change, and they can have peace. They can love people. They can have profound meaning, joy, and life. I pray you'll surprise people here today with your grace, with your mercy, with your hope that is alive. One last thought, church. If You can keep your eyes closed still, and then we're going to dismiss. The first thing Jesus preached when he came onto the scene was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent gets a bad word in our culture because it's, uh, it gets a bad rap in our culture because it's often been misused and misunderstood. It's, it doesn't mean stop doing everything that's so bad and start doing everything that's so good. It doesn't mean figure this all out and stop being evil. It means change the way you think because there's a new operating system called the kingdom of God that we are invited into and it will totally change the direction of your life. Start thinking according to the kingdom of God, according to the truth of God. That starts by knowing you are God's beloved, his beloved daughter, his beloved son. And it's been said, your life is almost always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. So Lord, we repent of those thoughts that are just pulling us the wrong directions. We want to turn back to thoughts that lead to the song of faith. We want to be filled with the thoughts God, that lead us into a flourishing life. And I pray that for each person here. I pray they'll heed the invitation of Jesus right here in this moment. If that's you and you're, you're, this is happening in your heart, please talk to me or someone at some point today or this week or email us at hello at gracelandchurch.com. We wanna pray with you, resource you, and equip you. Um, I'm gonna pray this benediction over us and then we'll be dismissed. Next week, we'll continue in the Psalms. And uh, it's just so excited to see the, it feels like a roller coaster ride teaching through the Psalms. <laughs> Let me pray this benediction and we'll be dismissed. By the mercy of God, love has broken upon us. Light is given where once there was darkness and hope where there was only death. May you go into this week knowing that God will guide your feet into the way of peace. And may God's grace abound from the morning till the evening and even as you sleep in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great afternoon.